see how this goes. So we begin 22, Dale. Not, or I'm, we're trying it, all right? At some point we have to say it's just 22, right? We begin 22, it's sort of a confusing time. As a nation, we've experienced a surge of almost unimaginable wealth over the past several decades. Almost unimaginable. And we have advanced in technology in ways that our great-grandparents wouldn't even have been able to recognize. Yet, we are, with all of that, with the influx of unimaginable wealth, with technology that changes our lives and makes us makes life easier in many ways, that connects us to each other in ways that we've never been connected before. Yet, in that setting, we are, as a people, more tired than we've ever been before. I was just in a conversation last week, and they said, you know, we used to say we're busy, and now we're to say I'm tired. Actually, I think Tyson said that in the sermon last week. We're lonelier than we ever have been, that we're more connected. We're more dissatisfied with our lives than we have been, though we are wealthier and more connected than ever we have been before. We are more stressed, we are more depressed, we are more fractured as a people and as a nation than we have been in a very long time. And things have shifted so much and so quickly that it's hard to figure what's going on, right? Hasn't culture and life changed so much just in the past decade that it's hard to even keep up with? It's hard to figure out where things are and where things are going, isn't it? And, and it's not like the church is in the middle of all that. It's not, not like the church is actually a, an oasis in the middle of the desert either, is it? We've been rocked by scandal. We've experienced shrinking numbers, especially among millennials and Gen Z. We've become more divided and more nasty as a church than we have been in the past or at least for a very long time. And it's hard for us too, isn't it? Like, our church is a good deal smaller than it was before COVID. Before COVID, we were having conversations with the elders about maybe we're gonna cross the 200 number and maybe it's really time to get a building. And we don't have a building still. Well, in Jeremiah's day, where our passage is from, the Jews were experiencing a confusing time as well. Their nation had been conquered, Jerusalem had been sacked, the temple had been destroyed, and many of the Jews had been led into captivity into Babylon by the Chaldeans. They've been there a while now, maybe 20, 30 years-ish or so. And it was confusing, and they're trying to figure out in a different way, but just the way that we're trying to figure out what is God doing and where is he taking us? What's going on? And in fact, it would leave many of them asking the question, is our God even real? The God of our fathers that we heard that did all these amazing things, that chose Abraham, that led through Moses led the people out of Egypt and split the Red Sea and provided fire by night and shade by day by his glory, who rained manna from heaven every day, who provided quail for them. Is that God even real? 
because it doesn't seem like that's the God who's the God of Israel today. I don't see manna falling from heaven and I don't see him conquering our enemies for us. And if he is even real, then what in the world is he doing? Have you ever thought about that personally? You ever had those moments like, I know, I believe, I think I believe, but I wonder if that God of this Bible is true, then why does it look like this now? They were restless and they were ready now as a people to make something happen. They weren't content just to sit around anymore. And God sent them Jeremiah, a true prophet, with a somewhat surprising message. Jeremiah tells them what the real problem is. He tells them what the answer is. And he tells them what the condition is for that answer. He tells them what the real problem is, what the answer is. And what is the condition for the answer? Let's just read that passage that Carolyn read for us again. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah 29, verse 11 through 14. This first verse is the coffee cup verse. Now you might call it the Facebook verse. It's, it's the verse that we say is, is taken out of context and used to mean things that it's not supposed to mean. But what happens, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes with those kind of verses is then when it gets taken out of context and used wrongly for so long, then we would only want to use it anymore for the reason that it was given. We're going to try to reclaim that coffee cup verse this morning. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You hear that in the context of what's going on? They're in captivity They're waiting to get out. And he says, this is the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. He says this, then, that then points back to verse 10 where Jeremiah references that God had told them they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon, it seemed pretty obvious what the problem was. Their nation had been conquered by a pagan nation. They'd been taken into captivity. So those things need to be reversed. They need to, they need to throw off their oppressor or be released and get out of captivity and go back home. That's what needed to happen. That was the problem. Then everything would be okay. But this passage tells us that that's not the way that the Lord saw it. You see that in verse 14? He says, I have driven you into exile. I have sent you to Babylon. I did it. Why? Not because he had a bad future for them. He says, I know the plans that I have for you. They're plans for your good. But here's why. Because I'm after your ultimate good, not your comfort, not your security, not your luxury, 
not yourself. The people had stopped seeking the Lord and that's why they were taken into captivity. That's why their country was ransacked and Jerusalem was conquered and the temple was destroyed because the people had stopped seeking the Lord and the Lord's presence had been removed from his people. Throughout history of the people of God, the presence of God is the great treasure of God's people. If we just have a religious code apart from the presence of God among us, let us close the doors and go home and have your cute little brunches and do your Instagram things and just spend your Sunday playing golf or Madden or whatever in the world you want to do. It's the presence of God among his people that has always been the prize of the people of God. And that presence had been removed because the people had stopped seeking him. And therefore, after warning, after warning, after warning, generation after generation after generation, the Lord removed his presence and the people were conquered and sent into exile. And these false prophet, prophets, <coughs> excuse me, had come along. These prophets had risen up while they were in captivity in Babylon and said, hey, we're in Babylon. They've come and conquered us. They've come and taken away the promised land that God gave us. They ransacked the temple. They destroyed God's city, Jerusalem. They are the enemy. You got to get out of here. And you see there's, there was some political issues going on in Babylon. Things were kind of shaky. And they said, This political shaking is a sign that God is going to get us out of Babylon and send us back home. Because the problem was that they had been taken out of their land and out of the city and the temple had been destroyed. In their estimation, the problem wasn't that they had stopped seeking the Lord and God's presence had been removed. The problem for them was comfort, insecurity, and cultural religion has been taken away. It's easy to view the controlling culture around us as a problem when when believers experience exile. The problem is because the culture around us is so bad. It's easy to get fixated on the loss of power, the loss of prestige, the fact that the outside culture, outside the church, or outside the people of God reflects less what it looks like inside. That's the problem. That's never the problem. The point of exile, when God removes his presence and sends his people into a period of exile, the point of exile is to remind God's people that his presence is the true prize, that God himself is the true prize. In fact, God sends his people into exile exactly when they've been trusting too much on the trappings and the wealth. When we rely upon comfort, when we rely upon, when our faith becomes cultural, like it's just easy to to live our faith. It's more about a cultural Christianity than it is about a vital connection and relationship to Christ. When we accept a religion that isn't censored on the presence of God. When that happens, 
That's the problem. And that's when the Lord will remove his hand and send his people into exile until. And the problem isn't, hey, bring back a culture that looks more like the church or give us a building or give us more people. Send us back to where it's comfortable. He says, no, when you call out to me and you seek me with all your heart, then I will visit you and I will be found by you because I'm the prize. That's what he says the answer is. You see, whatever you think the source of your problem is will determine what you think the answer is. And whatever you think the answer is will determine how you pray and how you work and how you see things. It'll also open open up you, you to hear what either what God is really saying or to be fooled by a false prophet who says what you want to hear. That's what the Israelites thought the the problem in the in, in captivity. What the problem was is that they were in captivity. That's the problem. Therefore, our greatest need is to get away. We was to get out from under the rule of Babylon. Is to get their families out of the culture of Babylon. So false prophets arose, motivated by popularity and gain, or motivated directly by Satan. And they said this. They said, "The rocky times." <clears throat> Babylon is going through, is showing us that God's about to get us out of here. If that's true, if Babylon is the true enemy, then overtly or undercover, you have to fight the political and cultural power of this evil city because we don't have the temple we, and we need it. We can't follow God without it. We don't have the promised land. We can't flourish without the promised land that God's given us. For them, God was bound by physical things because it had gotten to the point that to them, God had really was there to serve them. That was the attitude that led them into exile. It was that pride that caused them to worship the created thing rather than the creator. It was the lack of total personal devotion to a radical and a radical reliance upon and a desperate hunger for God and his presence that caused God to send them into exile. And that's why God sent them Jeremiah, an unpopular prophet, because he had an unpopular message. And he said, no, it's going to take longer. You're not leaving now because you're fixated on the temple and you're fixated on the promised land and you're not even paying attention to the fact that you've forgotten to seek God. He is not your prize. It won't come. The answer won't come until you are desperate for God to come. The answer won't come until you are desperate for God to come because that is what you need. You don't need the temple. You don't need the land. You don't need your freedom. This is what God is saying. You need me. All that, the temple, the land, Jerusalem, all that was meant to point to me because I alone, me, God, I am the prize. That's what the saints of old continually pointed to over and over again in scripture. 
As a deer pants for the waters, for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before him? One thing have I asked, and that shall I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Moses had been crying out to God, God, send us into the promised land. Help us get in there. Help me with these people. Lead us there. And God said in Exodus 33, 17, he said, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I will lead you in. For you, I will send you in. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But Moses says this. He said, that's not enough. He said, please show me your glory. Paul said this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings being coming like him in death. Here's the answer to the uh, the core problem of God's people is, was the answer to the Jews problem and is the answer for us today in the beginning of 22. Here is the answer to the problem. God says, I will visit you and I will be found by you. That alone is the answer. God says, I alone know the thoughts that I have for you. And what are those thoughts that God has for you? What are the the thoughts that God has for his people? Peter opened up his first letter that we have in the New Testament saying, to those who are elect exiles, set apart, elect by God of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is is the will of God for you. This is the thoughts that he has for you. I have thought about you since before the world began. I foreknew you and I called you to myself. In the sanctification of the Spirit, set apart by the Spirit of God for obedience to Jesus Christ as the Trinity. The Trinity at work for your salvation. To foreknow you, to set you apart, and to call you to obedience to his Son, Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with his blood, this is God's thoughts for you, that the blood of Jesus Christ himself would be that which would be the price to buy you. And it would be the cost that would purge you of your guilt and your sins before a holy God. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's just packing it on more and more. These are the thoughts that God has for you, knowing that you'd be foreknown and you'd be set apart for him and that you would be uh, called to obedience with Jesus Christ with the sprinkling of his blood, but that grace and peace would abound to you. Not be sprinkled to you, not be doled out to you slowly, but that grace and peace from God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the creator of heaven and earth, the one and only eternal one would be poured out continually to you. Grace and peace. Breathe that in, believer, and breathe it out. Grace 
and peace to you. These are the thoughts that God has for you, his people. Grace, unmerited favor, and peace, shalom, wholeness. These are his thoughts towards you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. Not only that, you have a living hope breathing hope for your tomorrow, for your 22, for your next year, and for your eternity. Why? Because it is held up in Christ. That's what makes it a living hope. It's not a living hope because you keep it living by your Bible reading or by your prayer. It's a living hope because that living hope is living and breathing next to God the Father right now in eternity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ever living and breathing for you. He holds your name, believer, graven upon his hand. You are held there by him. It's not by your works. I look back over 21 and I say, man, there's a few things that I did well. There's a lot of things I didn't do great. There's a lot of promises I made to myself that I didn't live up to. There's a lot of promises I made to my family I didn't live up to. There's a lot of things I hope would be better. There's sins that I haven't been able to overcome. But my hope is not based upon my performance of last year, nor looking forward to this year and thinking, oh, it'll finally be different this year. My hope is ever living and breathing for me before the Father. And his blood was shed for me. In case I was wondering, maybe he's up there and it's not for me. His blood was shed for me. It was shed for the sprinkling of his blood, shed for you. That's your living hope, believer. This is the thoughts that he has for you. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look, there's a lot of people out there that believe they know what's going on with life. But only those who follow Christ follow a risen Lord. Who has seen death and conquered it and is on the other side saying, I'm going to pull you through, baby. It's tough. I know it's tough. I've been there. I know every single weakness and every single problem that you're going through. Not only do I know it because I've got, because I'm God, but I've experienced as a man. And I'm telling you, I got you, baby. You're going to make it through. Why? Not because I'm saying, hey, come get me. Because I'm saying I'm going to pull you through. I'll get you there to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. All right, that's cool. But not only that, Peter says, but, but this, but this. Who, by God's, by whose power? By God's power. By your power? No. By my power? <laughs> no. By Dox's power? Lord, no. Who, by God's power, are guarded. Do you think anybody can slip by the Lord God Almighty? Who at one point, at any given point, knows without expending any energy where every single molecule and atom is, what they're going to do and where they've been. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And believer, all this is yours in Christ. Dr. Church, 
All this is yours in Christ. Is there any limit to your God who has shown this kind of love and lavished this kind of goodness upon you? And it was assured you, I will do so throughout all of eternity. Is there any sort of limit to that God? Is there any sort of limit to the things that we should cry out to him and expect him to do in our midst and in our day and age? Who has that kind of salvation for us? Jesus Christ is the answer. It's because of him that we want to draw near to God because we see that kind of love towards us and we think then that's the kind of God I want to be around. And it's only through him that we can cry out boldly to God that Jesus Christ who is our living hope at the right hand of the Father. It is because of him that we can cry out to the Father, Lord, come and visit your people Re-remind us that you are the treasure. God, let not the name of Doxa be exalted, nor the name of any other church be exalted. Now, let not any minister's name be exalted, but Jesus Christ, come in our day, in our land, in our church, in this gym, in this city, in this county, in this place, at this time. Come and make your name known to be great, because you are great. Come and do great things, because you are great, and you do great things. Show your power, because you are all powerful and it's only in him that we can be confident that God will draw near to us and always keep us near he will pull us to he will pull us through and he will keep us that alone is the answer but here's the condition did you see the condition in the text then you will call upon me when is the then It's 70 years. Well, there's something magical about 70 years. Seven times 10, seven's a holy number. What's the deal about 70 years? He's like, for some reason, under God's providence, their hard hearts, he said, it'll take this long until you finally get to an end of yourself. When this salvation that I have bought and purchased for you this grace and peace multiplied to you, this inheritance, this presence, this power, it'll take that long until you say, I've give up on my own. I give up seeking other things. I give up my own power. I give up my name, I give up my comfort, I give up my security, I give up my pet theology, I give up my desires for what church should be like or what people around me should be like. I give up my expectations of what my life will look like. I give up, I give it up and finally get to an end of my freaking self. Can I say that, Dale? When I get to an end of myself and I say, that's it. That's how long it'll take you, he says. Then you will call upon me. And you'll come and what do we do? You'll perform these rituals and prove to me? No, he says, you'll come and pray to me. Then you will seek me and you will find me. When? Notice those two words. Then you will call upon me and pray to me. When 
you seek me with your whole heart. These are the instructions he gives us. Call upon me and pray to me. Seek me. You'll find me, but seek me. When you seek with all your heart. My biggest question for you this morning isn't what are your great resolutions? I have some. What are your great resolutions for 22? My question for you this morning is, are you finally at an end of yourself? Are you finally desperate enough to call out to God and to seek him with all your heart, believing that you'll be found, that he will, he will be found by you and you'll be found by him, but, enough, but fed up enough that you say, I'm at the end of myself. A couple months ago, we changed our format here. We simplified a little bit our setup. We went acoustic. We began a prayer service at nine. This hasn't been just about wanting to just quote unquote pray more as a church or to have a a better prayer meeting. What we're trying to do is we're trying to set ourselves aside to seek God with all of our hearts. That God that we were just studying about and hearing about that stirred our souls and our affections to set ourselves aside to seek him with all of our hearts. That's why we've been making the, the small changes that we've made. And, and, and since we made those changes, some of you have come up to me and you said, man, our worship together, it just seems different the past eight weeks. Some of you have said, hey, it feels more powerful or it feels more lively or it feels more freeing. Some have said, hey, the presence of God in our midst seems more pronounced. And if that's true, and maybe, maybe you don't know, maybe you haven't picked up on that. But, but if that is true, then I ask you a question, why is that? Is it because we've gone acoustic? Is there power in the acoustic and no, no speakers? Is it because we have a little less set up and tear down than we did before? Or is it that some of us have been praying and seeking? Not just that we would have better, more powerful services, but seeking God for his presence and asking that his powerful presence would fall upon us. In the end, does anything that, does anything really rise and fall whether we have set up or tear down or not, whether we have a building or not, whether there are fewer of us than pre-COVID? Does seeking God and calling out to that almighty creator God depend on any of those things?
we started to pray. We started to pray. And some of us, some of us have seen some results. And those of us who have are encouraged. The others are still looking and they don't see anything. It's like Elijah looking out over the cliff to see where's the rainstorm that God promised would come that's going to end the drought. But either way, I tell you this. I don't think we've cried out yet. Some of us have prayed, but I don't think we've cried out yet. I don't think we've accepted our our personal roles that got us here. I don't think we've repented and wept bitterly by the lackluster Christianity that most of us have accepted. I don't think we've cried out yet in anguish over our dull, sleepy hearts before God. I don't think we've cried out yet. I don't think we believe that we've come to see the odiousness of our dead orthodoxy in the sight of our pierced Savior. I, I don't think we've cried out yet. Is there any greater investment that we can make for ourselves, for our families, for our church, for our lost neighbors and our lost co-workers, for our community? Is there any greater investment? Is there any other investment to make than you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart? I'm going to lead you in a little thought experiment as we end. What would our church begin to look like if we really set ourselves apart to cry out to God and to seek him with all of our heart? What would that look like? What would happen? What do you think would happen? What would our families and our neighborhoods look like? What would our workplaces and our community look like if we began to do that? If we committed ourselves to that? If we said, Lord, let it not be 70 years, bring us to an end of ourselves, and we just devoted ourselves now, today, this Sunday, next Sunday, this year, God, we will seek you with all of our hearts. What would it look like? Would we see conversions? Do you think we would start to see some stories of those who are far from God suddenly awakened to their sin and the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you think we would see people delivered from darkness into light? Do you think we would see people who are racked by their sin? Who are racked by continual cycles of darkness do you think we would see them delivered do you think we would see awakening in our church and in our neighborhoods and in our community do you think maybe God would even give us a building all of a sudden we could receive a building not as the prize in itself but as a tool that God would give us for his sake and his glory Do you think God would turn us from a people of doubt into a people of belief? 
And people who instead of finding ways and reasons not to believe God will do what he says he will do, but instead wholly give ourselves to be a people of belief who believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. My prayer for 22 is that God would make us a people of belief whose hearts are broken and are desperate for him. And that our deepest prayer would be like Moses, show us your glory. God, we believe if we get that, we'll get everything else. But God, don't, like Moses said, don't send us into the promised land. God, don't give us more numbers. Don't give us a building. Don't do any of those things if you won't be with us. Oh, but God, show us your glory. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because, because, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The most high who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. We're gonna observe a holy meal with each other now. It's our first communion of the new year. And we do this every week and sometimes it's easy for it to become rote or habit. But this is a covenant meal. And what that means is that the Lord Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for you to unite you to himself. And we come and we partake, we are given the bread signifying his body and the cup signifying his blood as a covenant reminder that he is ours and we are his. And it's also a reminder that he alone is the prize. He's the one that we feast upon. He's the one that we've been reunited with. And everything else that is good and beautiful about salvation flows from that, but it's never the end because he himself is the end.
So believer, if you are a believer in Christ, come this morning and take that wafer and that cup and know that, remember and experience that Christ did this for you. And because of that action and because of that love, we know that we can cry out to him, that we can seek him and that we will be found by him and he will be found by us. And take that as your surety. And maybe say, God, if by your help, I will mess, I know I'm gonna mess up a lot of my resolutions for this year, but God, by your help, I want to come to an end of myself. I don't want to commit myself that I'm going to do X number of things. I'm going to wake up every morning. No, I just want to be an end of myself. Because when a desperate person doesn't have to be woken up to tell to be prayer, to prayer. A desperate person doesn't have to be reminded that it's time to eat. They're running to the, to the meal. If God can make us desperate, bring us to an end of ourselves, that we'll cry out. And that's maybe that's the true blessing we want as a church in 22. But we, but we pray that knowing that he will fill us. And we'll discover joy on the other side like we've never known before. I'm going to pray there'll be two stations. If you're not a believer in Christ this morning, if you're not a Christian, this is a meal for believers. But man, today can be the day that you join our ranks. We are a messed up people who are saved by a beautiful God. And that's the God we worship this morning. Find somebody, find me, go to the prayer area in the back, ask them to pray with you, tell them that you wanna know what it means to be a Christian. If you're a believer, two stations, one on either side, come, eat, and let's worship together.